I've heard from a number of folks after the service last night, our Saturday night service, after the nine o'clock, um, heard from people in emails and other communication how many in our church family were either in Maui, have family members who had a home in Maui who were there, um, and we know that that has just been devastating, and uh, we're looking for ways in which we can be engaged and help. I know even some of the normal ministries we go to and churches, there's still some complexity to getting the kind of relief that they're going to need and some of the long-term help, but we're going to be focusing on that, and we'll find ways to do that and communicate that with you uh, as a church family. But I want to pause and pray uh, for the folks that have been impacted and affected uh, and uh, there are a lot of question marks on some people's homes, their businesses. Uh, there's been a lot of loss of life. Let's just pause and pray. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are heavy for not only the folks in our congregation or in our community that have been directly and indirectly affected by this, but the people who are there on the ground. Pray for those still trying to get back to their homes here in the continental United States. We pray that you would provide flights and safety Father, I pray uh, for folks on the ground there who know you, that they might be a living example of Christ and his kindness to people there. Give the government officials, relief officials, wisdom in knowing how best to move through the devastation. And Lord, I pray this would be a time in which many would be drawn to you and that your followers would shine for your kingdom the simple kingdom that we sang about a few moments ago so that people could see the reality of Christ lived out in the midst of, of all that's gone on there. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. One of the incredible stories I heard from Maui this week, one of our staff members' daughter had just moved there last Saturday into a condo and uh, just had met some neighbors and she got to a place where she had no food, and no water, and uh, those neighbors gave her some granola bars. It was an elderly couple. They even helped her connect with some relatives outside of town when that was possible. And just the kind of kindness that was shown. Today I want to talk about kindness. And our world needs kindness now perhaps more than it has in a very long time. So we want to talk about the life of David again. If you want to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to talk about unexpected kindness. This is a great story in the life of King David. This is a character that lived a thousand years before Jesus lived on earth. And um, this is a story, and it's a point at which David has really established his kingdom. He's uh, become the king. He has solidified all 12 tribes after a time of division. He's established the city of Jerusalem after taking it from the Jebusites as a center for their people. He brought the Ark of the Covenant that represented the expressed presence of God into the center of God's people. Uh, things are going great. Matter of fact, in, in David's era, you have the fulfillment of the land promises that have been given to Abraham. And, and this is really the golden age of David's reign as king over Israel. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that he wanted to build a permanent temple for God uh, to bring worship and to have God Jehovah God at the center of all that they are as a nation. And God had said no to him. And we talked about how he responded to the no from God and what we can learn from that last week. But this week we have a story of incredible, radical, unexpected, unusual, abnormal kindness extended by David to someone who is shocked as much as anybody else is that there would be kindness shown to him. So as we look at 2 Samuel chapter nine, I want us to understand today that in our divided, weary, lonely world, God calls us as his followers, as the followers of Christ, to show radical kindness to those who least expect it from us. 
Oh, what a different world this would be if we would live out the kingdom principle found in the life of David in 2 Samuel 9. We are called on to be the people who show radical, unusual, countercultural kindness to other people. And David does that in this story. Someone has said, in a world where you can be anything, you can define yourself as anything today, be kind. Your neighbors need it, your coworkers need it, your family needs it, maybe your spouse needs it from you. Kindness, the kindness of Christ. As we look at these 13 verses, we're gonna see six ways in which this unexpected kindness was radical. The first one is simply this. This kind of unexpected kindness is radically proactive, not reactive. It's proactive, not reactive. It makes the first move no matter what others do. It doesn't wait for somebody else to take the first step. It doesn't need anything to stimulate it to do it. It just makes the first move this kind of unexpected radical kindness. Now again, David is at this place where things are going great in his kingdom. I'm sure he's busy, he's got a lot to do. But we read one day he just has this impulse, this desire, this, he makes this decision that he wants to show kindness. In 2 Samuel chapter nine and verse one, you can follow along in your hard copy of the Bible or on a mobile device like I'm doing here. We read, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now I want to emphasize the first part of this verse as we talk about how kindness, Christ-like kindness is proactive, not reactive. He says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Now, the word kindness here is a word in Hebrew that is used 250 times in the Old Testament if you're familiar with things like uh, a phileo kind of love or uh, eros kind of love, agape love in the New Testament, agape love being the highest love, this is that kind of word in the Old Testament. This is the greatest, grandest word in Hebrew for love and grace, and it speaks of a sacrificial, others-oriented, God-like love that is loyal and faithful and committed. It's a great word. Chesed is the word, chesed. I like it because you clear your throat as you say it at the beginning of the word. As a matter of fact, try to say the word with me, chesed. Ooh, wow, people in front of you don't appreciate that. Uh, but this word is this beautiful, it kind of sounds ugly when you say it, but it is probably the most beautiful word of the Old Testament. And David is saying, is there a descendant left from Saul? So remember Saul was the king before David and he turned his back on God, so God raised up David. Now in the ancient world, if you become the king and you were not of the lineage of the prior king, then you tried to kill anybody who was a descendant of the prior king so they could never claim that throne or nobody could prop them up to claim that throne. And so for David, to say, I'm looking for a descendant of Saul to show chesed, kind of love to, this kind of kindness to, is really radical. And he's doing it proactively. He's making the first move here to do this. This is grace. Undeserved, unexpected, radical love and kindness is about to be extended to someone who has no idea it's coming and they don't necessarily deserve it. This is grace, that's what grace is. Chuck Swindoll in his comments here on this section of scripture 
says about this grace. He says uh, that that's the way grace is. Grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for things that have been done that deserve love. Grace operates apart from the response or the ability of the individual. Grace is one-sided. Grace makes the first move. This week, can I challenge you to ask the Lord to just stir your heart to proactively take the first move with a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, somebody online, sometimes online, this is the place that's getting harder and harder to be kind. Take two or three occasions this week to extend proactive, first move kind of kindness where you don't have to be prompted by anything and you just are gonna show love and kindness to someone, a kind word. Look for three or four occasions to do that this week. This kind of radical, unexpected kindness is proactive, not reactive. Secondly, it's relational, not functional. It's relational, not functional. What do I mean? David is not just marking off a checkbox here and saying, I've got to do this. There's a relationship involved in this. It focuses on people no matter what has to be done. This is not just David saying, I've got to move through my to-do list for the day. This is deeply rooted in a relationship in the past. And you can go back into 1 Samuel. We saw this briefly as we were looking at David beginning to go on the run from Saul. He ran to various sources for help. And one was Saul's son, Jonathan, who was his best friend. And they made a commitment to each other that they would look out for each other's families if something happened to either one of them. And he decides that based on that relationship, this connection he has, he needs to find any descendant of Saul to fulfill his covenant relationship with Jonathan. Now, there's a place for random acts of kindness, and some people are really into random acts of kindness. You can read books on it. You can get lists of things you can do. You know, it's the kind of thing where you're in the McDonald's drive-thru and you pull up and they say, oh, this is your lucky day. The person in front of you paid your bill. And then they look at you like you're supposed to pay for the person behind you. I always want to ask what the people ordered first to decide if I'm going to continue this pattern. But there's something to be said for random acts of kindness. But this has to do with you have a connection, a link, something in common with this person. And so this comes out of relationship. And we believe here at Calvary that life change happens in relationships. And so I'm not asking you necessarily to just do something for a perfect stranger this week. I'm saying look for the people in your life every day, coworkers and friends and neighbors, people in your home, friendships, those you interact with online, and, and show them this kind of kindness. The last part of, of uh, verse 1, 2 Samuel 1 again, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is flowing out of relationship. He cares about them. This is a genuine affection that he's going to have for this person because it comes out of relationship. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Do you take delight in, in sharing kindness, a kind word and encouragement with other people? I like how Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. People need you to be caring. You don't have to do good works to prove anything to God. Jesus did all that's necessary for you to have a relationship with God. 
once we know Jesus, the good works flow out of us, and first and foremost, they bless the people around us. When Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor, he told the story of a Jewish man traveling in a treacherous part of a road. And he's beaten up and left for half dead and robbed. Other Jewish people come along and they, they ignore him, but a Samaritan comes along and everyone hearing Jesus tell the story just gasped at that point because Samaritans hated Jews and Jews hated Samaritans in the day of Christ. And so they're worried this Samaritan is gonna be even more cruel than the robbers were. And he stops and helps. And Jesus says, that man was a neighbor. Why? Because they shared the common bond. They even had a relationship as fellow travelers on a treacherous part of the road. Road. He slowed down and cared for that person. So while this is a relationship, it doesn't mean they have to be a lifelong friend. It means you have something in common in that moment where you can speak into that person's life and show them kindness. As a matter of fact, this is what Christ's kingdom is all about. We just sang about it. It's simple. Be kind to those around you with the same kindness God has shown you. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, we're supposed to clothe ourselves in this. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Can anyone around you accuse you of being clothed that you wear as a regular part of your life? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? We're to be clothed in this. Let me tell you, when you reach out and do something kind for somebody that you know and whatever connection you have, it can be super powerful. I was, as I began this week, the Lord brought an instance to mind right away that happened to me a few years ago. Someone had uh, sent me a pretty tough email to read and, and said some things about me that I just knew weren't true. And I knew them pretty well and it, hurt very deeply, and in the middle of the day, I, I just told our then uh, executive pastor, Curtis Johnson, I said, I, I'm, I'm just gonna go home. I, he knew some of the background and knew how painful it was, and he understood that for the rest of the afternoon. Went home, just was bummed and just aching, and it, it was very painful. And uh, around seven o'clock, there was, the doorbell went off, and uh, there came Curtis and the rest of our executive team, which I serve as senior pastor, and uh, um, they came in. They just said, we just want to pray for you. We know this is really hard. I can get a little emotional telling the story because it meant so much to me. It was just a prayer. They weren't there very long, maybe 10, 15 minutes and left. But that unexpected act of kindness based on the fact they cared about me wasn't just something they were marking off on their to-do list for the day. Matter of fact, they probably all had something to do that evening, but they knew I was hurting and they showed up. That's, that's a part of this kind of kindness that David is thinking about relationship here as he's about to extend kindness to someone who doesn't know it's coming. Maybe you've got a story that you'd like to share about how someone showed you kindness. Callie, the director of our, our social media worked with me yesterday and she posted something and said, Pastor Sean's talking about unexpected kindness. Share a story about when someone shared unexpected kindness with you. And she put that on our Facebook and Instagram, which are really easy to reach because it's Calvary Westlake on either. Uh, you can go there and share a story. And then maybe go read those stories because we can learn from each other of how we can be people who extend unexpected kindness to others. Now, don't be one of those people, though, that tells the story of when you shared unexpected kindness with others. Talk about how others did that with you and learn from that and, and listen to how others were shown unexpected kindness. 
This kind of unexpected kindness is radically proactive, it's relational, and thirdly, it's risky, not safe. It's risky, not safe. It creates vulnerability no matter how much could be lost. It creates vulnerability. And David in this scenario, by looking for a descendant of Saul, is probably got his advisors on edge. At first they hear, oh, you're looking for the descendants of Saul. You've secured the borders. We're pretty much at peace with our neighbors. We're, we're doing great on the inside. And so you want to find out if there's any threat to the throne, you're going to eliminate him. But then when he says to show them kindness, they're like, what? You show kindness to one of them, they could bite the hand that feeds them, and, and if there is someone out there like this, your kindness could make you very vulnerable to them taking back the throne in Saul's name. Look at verse two of 2 Samuel 9. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Now I wanna say this about Ziba. He's much more than just a servant. He's a businessman, he runs the household. He was very close to Saul. He did everything to take care of all of Saul's household and his fortune and all that. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness, his chesed kind of love? Ziba answered, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. There's one son left, Ziba says. One son. And he is lame. Now, we know this individual. It happens to be a son of Jonathan. So Saul was his grandpa. Jonathan was his father. This boy was five years old when his Grandpa Saul and his father, Jonathan, were killed by the Philistines in war, and the nanny taking care of the child was worried they would try to track him down to kill him because, again, in the ancient world, you got rid of any descendants of the king, whether you were the invading army or you were someone overthrowing the government from the inside or whatever was going on. And so she grabs the child, he's five years old, but somehow she drops him. You can go back in 2 Samuel 4 and read about this. And both of his legs are damaged and he can no longer walk. He's lame in both feet. And it says that at the end here, it says, so King David had him brought from low to bar. Now I love the name of where this young man is. <laughs> low to bar. The word low in front of something in Hebrew means not, so it negates whatever comes next. The next word, debar, means green pasture. It's so he's in a place they've named not green pasture. As a matter of fact, the, the simplest translation of it is he lives in the place of nothingness. Now why would a descendant of Saul be living in a place of nothingness? Because he wants to stay off the radar of the new king to whom he's not related. So he's living in a part of the Jordanian Valley that is a wasteland, you can't grow anything there. Very few people live there, but he's out of the main flow of people so he won't be discovered. He knows that in, in that world, David should track him down and kill him to remove, remove any threats. So he's been fearful there's gonna be a knock on a door that says, I represent King David. So when David does this, it would even stir up his advisors and say, why do you wanna stir this up and bring someone in to be kind to them that could backfire on you? This is risky, David, what are you doing? 
But the kind of kindness that's demonstrated in 2 Samuel 9, the kind of kindness that's a part of Christ's kingdom, is a love and grace that is willing to take risk even if it could cost. I want to just stop. As I thought of this message, the Lord just impressed on my heart through the week that some of you who are parents, adoptive parents or foster parents, can I just say thank you for caring for those children? It's one thing for a church or for us to believe biblically that life begins at conception and goes throughout natural life until the Lord ends that life and to value life. But I love it when there are those that God moves and calls to step into that space to adopt a child and bring that child into their home or to care for foster children that may come and go from their home. And there's a lot of risk involved in adoption and fostering, a lot of unknowns, a lot of insecurities. And I just want to say to those of you who are involved in fostering and adopting, you are my heroes. You're a part of the front line of caring of caring for a young life. Thank you. And I know that has involved risk to show that kind of kindness. And some of you have experienced some of the costs that have come along with that in a variety of ways. But thank you. My parents taught me a lot about taking risk. I think my dad would say I didn't even know it was risky. I grew up in northern Indiana, next door to South Bend, Indiana, in Mishawaka. We were part of a little small church there, two, three hundred people at most. And um, we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Wednesday night was Awana, and before Sunday morning service, we went to Sunday school. My dad became the part-time custodian, so we were not only there when the doors were open, we were there when the doors were locked. And my mom had all these issues from a traumatic brain injury that caused a lot of stress in her home. My dad, trying to deal with that, didn't always help it. He actually threw gasoline on that fire at times. My brother and I would try to deal with mom's situation and her issues and her mental health and all that, and we would also throw gas on the fire of that whole situation. So there's a lot of chaos, but I saw in my parents a desire to know, love, and serve Jesus in the midst of that. That drew my heart toward Christ. And one of the ways in which my parents showed what I would consider risky, unconditional, radical kindness to others was my dad in the early 70s was the church bus driver, and he'd drive a bus around and pick up kids for Sunday school and church, then take them home after church. The church got to the point they couldn't afford the bus. It kept breaking down, so they got rid of the bus. But my dad would still go pick up the kids in our car. This is now like probably 1976, 1977. And we had a Delta 88. I don't even remember who made that car, Oldsmobile or somebody. Delta 88, it was like a boat. I mean, this car, you know, you hit a bump and it just went like this for like the next three miles, you know, just one little bump because it just floated. Big, you know, this is the days when the front seat was a big bench. This is before seatbelts were required, wise but not required. And my dad would pick up these kids for specifically Wednesday night for this Awana Midweek Children's Club and in our church, and we'd drive around and we'd get sometimes eight to ten other kids with the four of us in this car. <laughs> and there had been a, a, a two brothers who came, Tim and his brother Scotty, and Scotty had braces on his legs and he had very slurred speech. He had some challenges and disabilities, and, and we picked them up, and they had a friend that Scotty knew from the school he went to, Tina, who was in a wheelchair. She had cerebral palsy. She's eight or nine years old. She couldn't even hold her own head up, was drooling most of the time, couldn't speak. She would squeal. If something was hurting or something, she was happy, it'd be the same squeal. 
She's confined to a wheelchair, and we would pick her up for church. My dad would just take her and her very thin, frail body up out of the wheelchair and put her in the back seat. Then he'd fold up the wheelchair and put it in our trunk. We'd get so many kids into the car that my parents would say to me, you crawl down, and I would, I would crawl down. I was skinny and small, and I would ride the last part of the ride to church in the footwell where my mom's feet would be in the passenger side. And Troy would do the same, maybe in the back. But we'd cram all these kids in, and, and my mom and dad cared for those kids, cared for Tina. My dad went out of his way to help her out of that chair, and there were so many needs related to that, and we grew up thinking that was normal because of the example of my parents. I'm not saying you go and grab kids and please believe me, don't put your children in the footwell of your car, wear your seatbelts. But my parents, I watched them over and over again in very simple, small ways that nobody knew about, take risks to show love to other people. Can anyone accuse you of taking any risk to show unexpected kindness to anyone else in the last week, last month? David is willing to take the risk to show love to this individual. The fourth way in which this kind of radical, unexpected kindness is unusual. It's unusual, not typical. That's the fourth way this kind of unexpected kindness shows up in David's life in this story. It's unusual, not typical. It becomes countercultural no matter how much pressure may come. I'm sure there was pressure on David. What are you doing here, David? This isn't the smartest thing. What are you doing? This is totally unusual. It's countercultural. It's not typical. And that's what Christ's kingdom is. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense. It goes against culture. We read in verse 6 of chapter 9, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. David said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your father Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, Mephibosheth thought there was a knock coming one day from one of David's men, but it would be to take his life. Instead, he's invited to meet the king, and the king says, don't be afraid, I'm going to give you all the land that was your grandfather Saul's. Now, Saul was king. He had a lot of land. He could take what he wanted. All that land would have actually gone to David. So David is giving up his own land to this man, and he says, and you're going to always eat at my table. That is a very strong phrase in the culture of that day. It means he was invited to live in the palace with David and eat at his table. Not just like one meal, but breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is extravagant grace and kindness, undeserved, out of nowhere, unexpected, unusual. We discover in what I've just read the man's name. It's Mephibosheth. Can I just urge you, don't name any of your children Mephibosheth. Because Mephibosheth in Hebrew means bad breath. When David says to him, are you Mephibosheth? He's saying, are you bad breath? (laughs) Now, probably in its understanding of the day, breath actually can mean life. 
So it's bad life. And the word, the first part of this that has to do with bad is the idea of shameful. It's shameful life. If he was given this name at birth, it may have been he was an illegitimate son of Jonathan. We have no indication of that, but that could be what it was. But they often would take on a name based on circumstances of life that would mark them for the rest of life. So maybe it's when he fell and his legs became lame when he was five that then he was given the name Mephibosheth, shameful life. Because in the ancient world, even in Israel, to be someone who was lame or blind or crippled or poor, anyone on the margins, meant you had a shameful life. As a matter of fact, there were all kinds of crazy superstitions that went with this that if you were kind to a person who was lame, that was actually interrupting a judgment of God on someone and you would get the same thing they had. So Mephibosheth is an outcast living in Lodabar, the place of nothingness. His name means shameful life. And here comes David showing him this incredible act of kindness. And so he responds in this last verse, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Don't you know I come from a place of nothingness? Don't you know that my own name means shameful life? Why would you invite me to eat at your table? Why would you give me all the land that my grandfather Saul had? I don't get it. You know what's beautiful about this story is it's a great picture of the gospel, of our relationship with God. There's a king, there's a fallen individual, all of us as human beings are fallen, trapped in sin because of the fall of Adam and Eve. But in this story, the king offers this fallen individual, this person who has a name of shame, to come and eat at his table. Song of Solomon talks about God's children banquet at his table. The scriptures speak of one day there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb where we gather around Jesus and celebrate. In this great gospel story, the king of kings and lord of lords looks at us as fallen people and he sent his son Jesus to die to be raised from the dead for us. If he was buried and raised for us, he would provide us new life. Grace, goodness, love, we don't deserve, we don't do anything to get that. We simply put our faith in Jesus. And if you haven't come to that place where you've rested your trust and your faith in Jesus, now and forever as your Savior, then you are not yet at the banquet table, but the invitation is out for you to come into the presence of the Lord now and forever, for him to walk with you here and to be with him forever in eternity. I just encourage you to receive that invitation to come to the table. Come to Jesus today. We're trying to make it as simple as we can for you to immediately respond. You can, you can text the name Jesus. Just put that in the body of the text, 58568, the number below me on the screen. And we'll communicate with you, reach out to you, follow up with you, try to help you know that you have not only received the invitation, but you've responded and you're at the table. You can talk to any of our care and prayer team members who'll be down front after the service to pray with folks over any concern or need or burden you have, but they're here to also help you know that you know Jesus as your Savior. I'll be in the lobby. You can speak to me. We can have someone open the scriptures today and make sure you know this wonderful invitation from the King of kings and Lord of lords to come and dwell with him forever at his table. For us who know Jesus as Savior, 
We need to hear the words of our Savior and Lord. They are radical words when it comes to who and how we love. He said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 43 and 44, you have heard that the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are you praying for the people who irritate you online? Are you praying for the people who, who you consider very different than you politically or, or their views or, or, or do you just get so worked up in the war? You know, I think it's one of the stupidest things Christians do when we, we say, well, I only have that attitude because they have that attitude. What are you, in kindergarten? <laughs> Christ's kingdom is radically different. It's upside down. It's unusual. It's not typical. Mother Teresa said, God does not call us to do great things, but small things with great love. Someone has said, a kind gesture can reach a wound that only compassion can heal. When you you do something unusual to extend the kindness God has shown you to someone else, it's amazing the pockets and places in their lives you may not even know about that can be healed by that radical kindness of Christ flowing through you to them even those who don't expect it from you. Yesterday, we had our beach day with our special abilities ministry. I want to say thank you to all the volunteers who were there. Thank you for the families of uh, uh, the kids who were there for coming out. I got to be there for a couple hours and just watching Hannah, who's been directing that, and her whole team and all involved and just so many great folks serving and a lot of the families that came up to me talked about how that's the only time they get to go to the beach. They live close to the beach, but because of sensory issues with that, that child, they, they can't go to the beach, or maybe their wheelchair, or there's physical things that makes it impossible. But they talk about how their child loves to come on beach day, and we do it every year here at Calvary. It was great to have hundreds of people out there yesterday serving and being served and being together in community. And a lot of the parents came up to me and said, you know, we've gone to other churches, we've been, lived in different parts of the country, and no church has ever cared for our child like Calvary. And they'll say, it's so unusual, it's not typical. Now, I just want to say God has been good to us in allowing those doors to open for us. There's nothing special about us or bright about us, it's just the way the Lord has opened those doors for us, and, and it's been a great thing. But to hear people say it's unusual kind of grieved me because it ought to be normal for Christ's kingdom to care about people that can easily be marginalized in the ancient world would have been considered worthless, like Mephibosheth expresses here. But I want to give you a glimpse of what Beach Day was like so you can see kind of the unusual, not typical love being shared on the beach yesterday. Watch this video. Much fun, and we absolutely love it. Best day ever. 
my daughter, she is accepted and loved and appreciated for who she is at this very second. People see the love on the beach. It is the best day of the year. Isn't that great? Again, thank you. Thank you to Hannah and all those who serve there. This kind of kindness is demonstrated by David to Mephibosheth and that we're to be demonstrating to others through our lives is proactive, it's relational, it's risky, it's unusual, and fifth, it's faithful, not erratic. It's faithful, not erratic. There's something about his loyalty here to Jonathan that continues. And what's interesting is the loyalty he has, the faithfulness he has, is something that continues into Mephibosheth's life. It stays loyal no matter what happens. Circumstances can change, things can be turned upside down, but there's a, a faithfulness. This is not just an impulsiveness, but this is a faithfulness to the goodness of God and to sharing it with others in a loyal, relational, faithful way. We read in verse nine, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Now, you might think this is a curse on Ziba. He's being put into servitude, but he actually has been out of work, and this is re-engaging him in his occupation, so he gets the blessing from this as well. And he says, and Mephibosheth, <laughs> say that like five times in a row. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He's living in the castle. Now Ziba makes this, you know, oh, this is such a great thing. I'm so committed, I'll do this. He looks faithful and loyal. But you speed forward ahead about two decades, and David's son Absalom tries to overthrow David, so David has to flee Jerusalem for 40 days. Now when he flees, they don't know if Absalom's gonna win or not. As he's fleeing, Ziba, this guy in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, shows up with 200 donkeys, 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of dates, and he says, this is for you while you have to run from your son, but we look forward to the time you return as king here in Jerusalem. And David says, well, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, he stayed back in Jerusalem because he's hoping this will be an opportunity to reclaim the throne of his grandfather Saul while you're out of power. And David is stunned. And David's in exile for those 40 days, and as he's coming back, one of the first two people to meet David as he's coming back to Jerusalem after he defeats Absalom is Mephibosheth. You can see this in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. And Mephibosheth shows up in the same clothes he was wearing when David had to flee the castle. 
He shows up having not cut his hair, having not bathed, having not trimmed his beard, and the text in 2 Samuel 19 goes so far and say he hadn't clipped his toenails. You say, well, why in the world is all that emphasis put in the text? It's to tell us that Ziba was a liar because he has been in mourning since the time this kind man has had to flee the city And so he even says to David, Ziba lied. I could do nothing to get to you because of my condition. He abandoned me and made me sound like a traitor. It's not true. He was loyal to David when David was loyal to him. And there's something about kindness that breaks down barriers and opens doors where there once would have been barriers. It's so unusual. It's so liberating. It's faithful. Sixth and finally, this kind of kindness is generous, not calculated. It's generous, not calculated. It gives with no strings attached, no matter what others do in return. David doesn't say, Mephibosheth, you can stay in my house and eat in my, at my table as long as I don't hear any whisperings of you trying to overthrow me. doesn't say, as long as the crops out in those fields pay for your living expenses in the palace. He doesn't do any strings attached. In Christ's kingdom, we're to be generous people who give to the place In our time, our dollars, our energy, our our heart to people and to God's work in such a way that we don't just calculate. We don't say, well, I'm not going to be kind because it would take up too much time. My day is busy already. I can't afford this. I can't afford that. I I don't have any more energy to do this or that. And there, there is no calculated kindness in Christ's kingdom where we do it with strings attached. We read in verses 12 and 13, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Now notice, I love how the whole story ends, because he always ate at the king's table. But this last phrase, why throw this in again? He was lame in both feet, because here's the contrast. This guy is from the place of nothingness, and because in that culture he was considered worthless because of his challenge, his disability, it shows the contrast with this incredible, extravagant, unusual, wild, unexpected, radical grace and kindness shown by David. It's a generosity that that breaks down barriers, and you do for people whether they can do anything for you. Mephibosheth could never do anything to repay David in any way, but David didn't calculate that at all. He was open-handed in his generosity. John Bunyan said, you've not lived until you've done something for someone who can never repay you. See, that's the bottom line about this kind of unexpected generosity. And in this world that is divided and polarized, that's weary and worn, that's lonely and isolated, God calls us as his children to extend unexpected kindness, radical kindness to the people who expect it from us the least in our lives and online. Can anyone accuse you of showing them unexpected, radical kindness? Can anyone say you extend radical kindness to those who least expect it from you? In 2015, we hosted here at Calvary the Global Access Conference. Johnny and friends 
I put this together. We were the host. We canceled all of our ministries that fall, that October, for a week because they were going to use our building every day with hundreds of people. Um, it's the largest collection of special abilities, ministries from around the world in what we believe to be church history from Pentecost till now, and it still stands as probably the largest gathering of special abilities ministry in church history. What an honor for us to host that here. And on that, in that week, they painted a painting of the story Jesus told in Luke 14 about inviting people to a banquet and that our spirit needs to be that we do that whether they can repay us or not and we even eventually we should be thinking about the lame, the blind, the poor, the fringe, the marginalized. Are we caring about them? Are we loving them? Because in Christ's kingdom, all are welcomed by his grace and we who are the followers of Jesus should be extending that same kind of grace. Throughout the week, there was a mural hanging in our lobby, just a big canvas at first taken from a photo that had been staged. Hyatt Moore, the painter, painted the mural of the Luke 14 banquet of all the lame and the broken being invited in. And he put in there people like Johnny Erickson Tata, our, our friend Catherine Wolf, a little boy who received the 100th wheelchair, I think it was in Central or South America. And they put them all at the table because all are welcome at the table. And we're to be the people through our kindness who are pointing people and inviting people to the table. Watch this video as our friend Billy Burnett, who used to be the executive vice president there, is now retired, reads that Luke 14 passage from the words of Jesus. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do so, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please, excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please, excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come.
The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Father, shape and mold our hearts. Break down some of the barriers that would keep us from showing this kind of unexpected kindness to others. You, you have shown us goodness and kindness beyond what we could ever imagine in Christ. May we become an extension of that. May we clothe ourselves with that kind of compassion and kindness and humility and patience and love. May it truly be a chesed kind of demonstration of who you are in little ways even this week. Open our eyes to opportunities to extend that kind of kindness. Help us to see the goodness and kindness you've shown us and allow us, Lord, to see beyond ourselves and prompt us to invite others to the table through our kindness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.